and the stars are out. Everyone turn up your volume and turn down your lights. The twilight beacon begins transmitting now. Jedediah D. Blackwell here, coming to you from the Twilight Beacon here in the American Southwest. Tonight, we bring you two frightening stories from the Golden Age of Radio, featuring two of the most iconic and celebrated voices of the medium, Orson Welles and Richard Widmark. Our first story tonight is The Hitchhiker with Orson Welles, from Suspense on September 2nd, 1942. Orson Welles has an enduring legacy as the single most famous star of American radio. And although you might immediately associate him with sci-fi and horror stories, this is primarily because of the broadcast that first made him famous, the Mercury Theater presentation of the H.G. Wells story, The War of the Worlds. In truth, Orson Welles mostly performed in more everyday dramas on a regular basis, and his work in the horror genre was not a mainstay of his career. In the introduction to this suspense episode, Wells makes reference to this himself, and even gives a passing mention to that notorious radio show from four years before. Wells followed his fame in radio with a long acting career in TV and film, most notably starring in Citizen Kane, a film that he also co-wrote, produced, and directed. Citizen Kane launched Orson Wells to international stardom as a film actor, and is widely thought of as one of the best films ever made. He went on to act in over a hundred films over four decades, mostly in leading roles, and became one of the most recognizable faces and voices of American entertainment. The Hitchhiker was a popular story written for radio and was adapted four times for various programs, and Wells himself voiced it on each of those occasions. So, the story has a deep connection to his name. In 1960, the story was adapted for television as an episode of The Twilight Zone. Of special note in this recording is a plea directly from Orson Welles for Americans to participate in the payroll savings plan to purchase war bonds and support the United States effort in the Second World War. The U.S. had joined the Allied forces after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor just nine months before and was struggling to push back against the Japanese Navy in the Pacific Theater. The situation in Europe looked even more dire, and the Battle of Stalingrad would begin the day after this broadcast lasting for five full months. Wells was an enthusiastic supporter of the war effort and often lent his voice to promotion of war bonds. He was also named as a goodwill ambassador to Latin America as part of an effort to push back Axis influence in the region. And in this broadcast, he mentions that he is back in the U.S. for only a brief time, as a reference to his travels for this assignment. And now, we present The Hitchhiker, as heard on Suspense in September of 1942. The Columbia Network takes pleasure in bringing you Suspense. Columbia's parade of outstanding thrillers, produced and directed by William Spear and scored by Bernard Herrmann, the notable melodramas from stage and screen, 
fiction and radio, presented each week to bring you to the edge of your chair, to keep you in suspense. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. I'm very happy I am to be back in the United States and back on the Columbia Network, even for so short a visit as this one. Back with old friends like Johnny Dietz, who is tonight's director, and Bernard Herman. The Mercury Theater presented tonight's radio play for the first time last year. We came right out then and hailed it as a classic of the medium. Nobody argued the point. A lot of people asked us to do it again, so it's gratifying to get the chance now and to find a favorite of ours in this distinguished anthology of spook shows. Personally, I've never met anybody who didn't like a good ghost story. But I know a lot of people who think there are a lot of people who don't like a good ghost story. For the benefit of these, at least, I go on record at the outset of this evening's entertainment with the sober assurance that although blood may be curdled on this program, none will be spilt. There's no shooting, knifing, throttling, axing, or poisoning here. No clanking chains, no cobwebs, no bony and or hairy hands appearing from secret panels or, better yet, bedroom curtains. If it's any part of that dear old phosphorescent foolishness that people who don't like ghost stories don't like, then again, I promise you, we haven't got it. Not tonight. What we do have is a thriller. It's half as good as we think it is. You can call it a shocker. It's already been called a real Orson Welles story. Now, frankly, I don't know what this means. I've been on the air directing and acting in my own shows for quite a while now, and I don't suppose I've done more than half a dozen thrillers in all that time. Honestly, I don't think even that many, but it seems I do have a reputation for the uncanny. Quite possibly, a little escapade of mine involving a couple of planets, which shall be nameless, is responsible. Doesn't really matter. Don't think I disapprove of thrillers. I don't. A story doesn't have to appeal to the heart. It can also appeal to the spine. Sometimes you want your heart to be warmed, and sometimes you want your spine to tingle. The tingling, it's to be hoped, will be quite audible as you listen tonight to The Hitchhiker. That's the name of our story, The Hitchhiker. I'm in an auto camp on... Route 66, just west of Gallup, New Mexico. If I tell it, perhaps it'll help me. Keep me from going, going crazy. I've got to tell this quickly. I'm not crazy now. I feel perfectly well, except that I'm running a slight temperature. My name is Ronald Adams. I'm 36 years of age. Unmarried, tall, dark, with a black mustache. I drive a 1940 Buick, license number 6Y175189. I was born in Brooklyn. All this I know. I know that I'm at this moment perfectly sane. That it's not me who's gone mad. It's something else. Something utterly beyond my control. I've got to speak quickly. At any minute, the link may break. This may be the last thing I ever tell on Earth. The last night I ever see the stars. Six days ago, I left Brooklyn to drive to California. Goodbye, son. 
Good luck to you, my boy. Goodbye, Mother. Here, give me a kiss. And I'll go. I'll come out with you to the car. Oh, no, it's raining. Stay here at the door. Oh. Hey, what's this? Tears? I thought you'd promise me you wouldn't cry. Oh, I know, dear. I, I'm sorry. But I... I do hate to see Mother, you. Go. I'll be back. It'll only be the, on the course three months. Oh, it isn't that. It's, it's just the trip. Ronald, I wish you weren't driving. Oh, Mother, there you go again. People do it every day. I know, but you'll be careful, won't you? Promise me you'll be extra careful. Don't fall asleep or drive fast or pick up any strangers on the road. Oh, gosh. I think I was still 17 here, you two. Oh, and why, I mean, as soon as you get to Hollywood, won't you, son? Of course I will. Don't you worry. There's nothing going to happen. It's just eight days of perfectly simple driving on smooth, decent, civilized roads. With a hot dog or a hamburger stand every ten miles. I was in fine spirits drive ahead of me, even the loneliness seemed like a lark. I reckoned without him. Crossing Brooklyn Bridge that morning in the rain, I saw a man leaning against the cables. He seemed to be waiting for a lift. There were spots of fresh rain on his shoulders. He was carrying a cheap overnight bag in one hand. He was thin, nondescript, with a cap pulled down over his eyes. I would have forgotten him completely except that just an hour later, while crossing the Pulaski Skyway over the Jersey Flats, I saw him again. At least, he looked like the same person. He was standing now with one thumb pointing west. I couldn't figure out how he got there, but I thought probably one of those fast trucks had picked him up, beaten me to the Skyway and let him off. I didn't stop for him. Then late that night... I saw him again. It's on the new Pennsylvania turnpike between Harrisburg and Pittsburgh. It's 265 miles long with a very high speed limit. I was just slowing down for one of the tunnels. When I saw him, standing under an arc light by the side of the road, I'd seen quite distinctly the bag, the cap, even the spots of fresh rain scattered over his shoulders. He hallooed at me this time. Hello? Hello? Stepped on the gas like a shot. That's lonely countries for the Alleghenies, and I had no intention of stopping. Besides the coincidences or whatever it was, neither the Willies. Stopped at the next gas station. Uh, fill her up. Certainly, sir. Check your oil, sir? No, thanks. Nice night, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> it hasn't been raining here recently, has it? Not a drop of rain all week. Oh? Oh, I, I suppose that doesn't done your business any harm. Oh, people drive through here all kinds of weather. Mostly business, you know. There aren't many pleasure cars out on the turnpike this season of the year. I suppose not. What, uh, uh, uh what about hitchhikers? <laughs> hitchhikers here? 
What's the matter? Don't you ever see any? Not much. If we did, it'd be a sight for sore eyes. Why? Oh, guy'd be a fool who started out to hitch rides on this road. Look at it. Then you've never seen anybody? No. Maybe they get the lift before the turnpike starts. I mean, you know, just before the toll house. But then it'd be a mighty long ride. Most cars wouldn't want to pick up a guy for that long a ride. And you know, this is pretty lonesome country here. Mountains and woods. You ain't seen anybody like that, have you? Uh, no. Oh, no, not, not at all. I was just uh, a technical question. I <laughs> see. Well, that'll be just $1.49 with the tax. gradually passed through my mind a sheer coincidence. I had a good night's sleep in Pittsburgh. I didn't think about the man all next day until... until just outside of Zanesville, Ohio, I saw him again. It's a bright, sunshiny afternoon. The peaceful Ohio fields, brown with the autumn stubble, a dreaming in the golden light. I was driving slowly, drinking it in, when the road suddenly ended in a detour. In front of the barrier, he was standing. Let me explain about his appearance before I go on. I repeat, there was nothing sinister about him. He was as drab as a mud fence, nor was his attitude menacing. He merely stood there, waiting, almost drooping a little, the cheap overnight bag in his hand. He looked as though he'd been waiting there for hours. And he looked up. He hailed me. He started to walk forward. Hello? 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 No, not just now. Sorry. Going to California? No, not today. The other way. Going to New York. Sorry. After I got the car back on the road again, I felt like a fool. Yet the thought of picking him up, of having him sit beside me, was somehow unbearable. At the same time, I felt more than ever, unspeakably alone. Hour after hour went by, fields, the towns ticked off one by one. The light changed. I knew now that I was going to see him again. And though I dreaded the sight, I caught myself searching the side of the road, waiting for him to appear. sandwiches and pop here, don't you? Yeah, we do in the daytime. But we're closed up now for the I night. know. When I was wondering if you could possibly have a cup of coffee, black coffee, just... No, not this time no. of night, mister. My wife's the cook. She's a man. No, no, don't shut the door, please. Listen, just a minute ago... Uh, <laughs> just a minute ago, there was a man standing here right beside the stand, a suspicious-looking man. I, I don't mean to disturb it. You see, I was driving along when I just happened to look, and there he was. How was he doing? Well, nothing. You've been taking a nip. That's what you've been doing. Now, on your way before I call out your boats. I got into the car again and drove on slowly. I was beginning to hate the car. 
If I could have found a place to stop, to rest a little. I was in the Ozark Mountains of Missouri now. A few resort places there were closed, only an occasional log cabin, seemingly deserted. That's all that broke the monotony of the wild, wooded landscape. I had seen him at that roadside stand. I knew I'd see him again. Maybe at the next turn of the road. I knew that when I saw him next, I would run him down. next afternoon. I stopped a car at a sleepy little junction just across the border into Oklahoma to let a train pass by when he appeared across the tracks, leaning against a telephone pole. Perfectly airless, dry day. The red clay of Oklahoma was baking under the southwestern sun. Yet there were spots of fresh rain on his shoulders. I couldn't stand that. Without thinking, blindly, I started the car across the tracks. He didn't look up at me. He was staring at the ground. I stepped on the gas hard, during the wheel sharply toward him. I could hear the train in the distance now, but I didn't care. And something went wrong with the car. The train was coming closer. I could hear its bell ringing and the cry of its whistle. Still, he stood there. And now I knew that he was beckoning, beckoning me to my death. Oh, I frustrated him that time. The starter worked at last. I managed to back up. When the train passed, he was gone. I was all alone in the hot, dry afternoon. After that, I knew I had to do something. I didn't know who this man was or what he wanted of me. I only knew that from now on, I mustn't let myself alone on the road for one minute. Uh, hello there. Like a ride? Well, what do you think? How far are you going? Uh, where do you want to go? Amarillo, Texas. I'll drive you there. Gee. Uh, you mind if I take off my shoes? My dogs are killing me. Go right ahead. Oh, gee, what a break this is. hitchhike much? Sure, only it's tough sometimes in these great open spaces to get the break. Uh, I should think it would be, though. I'll bet you get a good pickup in a fast car. If you did, you could get places faster than, say, another person in another car, couldn't you? I don't get you. Well, take me, for instance. Suppose I'm, I'm driving across the country, say, at a nice steady clip about 45 miles an hour. Uh, couldn't, couldn't a girl like you just standing beside the road waiting for a list beat me to town... Or any town, provided she got picked up every time in a car doing from 65 to 70 miles an hour? I don't know. What difference does it make? Oh, no difference. It's just a crazy idea I had sitting here in the car. 
Oh, imagine spending your time in a swell car thinking of things like that. What would you do instead? What would I do? If I was a good-looking fellow like yourself? Why, I'd just enjoy myself every minute of the time. I'd sit back and, and relax. And if I saw a good-looking girl along the side of the road... Hey, look out! Did you see See who? A man standing beside the barbed wire fence. Oh, I didn't see anybody. I, there wasn't nothing but a bunch of cows and, and the wire fence. No? What did you think you was doing? Trying to run into the barbed There's wire fence? a man fence? there, I tell you. A thin gray man with an overnight bag in his hand. And I, I was trying to run him down. Run him down? Kill him? Say so you didn't see him back there? You sure? I didn't see a soul. As far as Watch I can for him the next time and keep watching. Keep your eyes peeled on the road. He'll turn up again. Maybe any minute. There! Look there! How does this door work? I, I'm getting out Did of here. Did you see him that time? No, I didn't see him that time. And personally, mister, I don't expect never to see him. All I want to do is go on living. I don't see how I will very long, driving with you. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't... I, I don't know what came over me, but please don't go. So if you'll excuse me... You can't go. Listen, how would you like to go to California? I'll drive you to California. Seeing pink elephants all the way? No, thanks. Uh-uh, thanks just the same. Listen, please, just, just one minute, please. You know what I think you need, big boy? Not a girlfriend. Just a good dose of sleep. Please. There, I got it now. Now you can't go, please. Come your back. hands off me. Do you hear me? Your hands off me. She ran from me. As though I were a monster. A few minutes later, I saw a passing truck pick her up. I knew then that I was utterly alone. It was in the heart of the great Texas prairies. There wasn't a car on the road after the truck went by. I tried to figure out what to do, how to get hold of myself. I could find a place to rest, or even if I could sleep right here in the car for a few hours along the side of the road. I was getting my winter overcoat out of the back seat to use as a blanket when I saw him coming toward me. Emerging from the herd of moving steer. Hello! Maybe I should have spoken to him then. Fought it out then and there. For now he began to be everywhere. Whenever I stopped, even for a moment, for gas, for oil, for a drink of pop, a cup of coffee, sandwich. He was there. I saw him standing outside the auto camp in Amarillo that night when I dared to slow down. He was sitting near the drinking fountain, a little camping spot just inside the border of New Mexico. He was waiting for me outside the Navajo reservation where I stopped to check my tires. I saw him in Albuquerque when I bought 20 gallons of gas. I was... I was afraid to stop now. I began to drive faster and faster. I was in, in lunar landscape now. The great arid Mesa country of New Mexico. I drove through it with the indifference of a fly crawling over the face of the moon. Now he didn't even wait for me to stop. 
unless I drove at 85 miles an hour over those endless roads. He waited for me at every other mile. I'd see his figure, shadowless, flitting before me, still in the same attitude, over the cold, lifeless ground, flitting over dried-up rivers, over broken stones cast up by old glacial upheavals, flitting in that pure and cloudless air. I was beside myself when I finally reached Gallup, New Mexico this morning. There's an auto camp here. Cold, almost deserted this time of year. I went inside and asked if there was a telephone. I had the feeling that if only I could speak to someone familiar, someone I loved, I could pull myself together. Your call, please. Long distance. Long distance, certainly. This is long distance. I'd like, uh, <laughs> I'd like to put a, in a call to my home in Brooklyn, New York. I'm Ronald Adams. I'm a, the, the number is Beechwood 200828. Certainly. I will try to get it for you. Albuquerque. New York for Gallup. New York. Gallup, New Mexico, calling Beechwood 20828. I read somewhere that love could banish demons. It's the middle of the morning. I knew Mother would be home. I pictured her tall and white-haired in her crisp house dress, going about her tasks. Be enough, I thought, just to hear the even calmness of her voice. Will you please deposit $3.85 for the first three minutes? When you have deposited a dollar and a half, will you wait until I have collected the money? All right, deposit another dollar and a half. Please deposit the remaining 85 cents. Ready with Brooklyn. Go ahead, please. Hello? Hello? Mrs. Adams' residence. Hello, hello, Mother. This is Mrs. Adams' residence. Who is it you wish to speak to, please? What? Who is this? This is Mrs. Winnie. Mrs. Winnie? I, I don't know any Mrs. Winnie. Is this Beechwood 208828? Yes. Uh, where, where's my mother? Where's Mrs. Adams? Mrs. Adams is not at home. She's still in the hospital. The hospital? Yes. Who the... is this calling, please? Is it a member of the family? Well, what's she in the hospital for? She's been prostrated for five days. Nervous breakdown. But who is Nervous calling? breakdown? Well, my grandmother never was nervous. It's all taken place since the death of her oldest son, Ronald. Death of her... Death of her oldest son, Ronald? 
Hey, what's this? What number is this? This is Beechwood 20828. It's all been very sudden. He was killed just six days ago in an automobile accident on the Brooklyn Bridge. Your three minutes are up, sir. Your three minutes are up, sir. Your three minutes are up, sir. And so... So I'm sitting here in this deserted auto camp in... Gallup, New Mexico. I'm trying to think. Trying to get hold of myself. Otherwise, I... I'm going to go crazy. Outside, it's night. The vast, soulless night of New Mexico. A million stars are in the sky. Ahead of me stretch a thousand miles of empty mesa. Mountains. Prairies. Desert. Somewhere among them... He's waiting for me. Somewhere I shall know who he is and who I am. So ends The Hitchhiker. And to Orson Welles, our considerable thanks for his playing of the title role. Mr. Welles, help wanted. Men, women, and children. Nature of work, hard, monotonous, back-breaking labor. Hours, 75 a week minimum. Pay, few cents an hour. Added inducement. Two meals a day, including several ounces of bad bread and a cup of thin soup. Don't delay. Apply at once. How would you respond to a want ad like that, Mr. and Mrs. American working man and woman? You'd laugh, wouldn't you, and throw the paper in the trash basket. Dismiss the whole advertisement as some kind of a joke, but believe me, it's no joke. It's a simple statement of the working conditions that exist today in Nazi Germany and the conquered countries under Nazi rule. It's also an exact statement of the working conditions that will be imposed on you and every member of your family if the Nazis win this war. You yourself personally can stop them from winning, as you know. You don't have to give up your well-paid job to do it. You needn't have to be a soldier or a sailor or an airman or a nurse or a war worker to ensure American victory. Uncle Sam doesn't ask plain, ordinary, hard-working citizens like you to give him anything. All he asks, all this he does ask very seriously and very urgently, is that you loan him ten cents out of every dollar you make. That's all there is to it. Lend Uncle Sam a dime. To win this war. And he'll pay you back with interest when he's won it. The easiest, most convenient way to lend him these dimes is to enroll in the payroll savings plan. Just tell your boss to deduct 10 cents from every dollar he pays you and lend it to Uncle Sam in your name. Sign up for this simple savings plan today, and when victory comes, you'll have war bonds in your pockets instead of Axis bonds on your wrists. Suspense will be heard again two weeks from tonight. Next Wednesday night, September 9th, the Columbia Broadcasting System will present over many of these stations at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Wartime an address by W. Averill Harriman, the United States Land Lease Administrator in London. Mr. Harriman, as the personal representative of the President of the United States, 
attended the Moscow conferences between Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin. Next Wednesday's broadcast will be Mr. Harriman's first public address since his return to this country. Suspense is produced and directed by William Spear. John Dietz was our guest director this evening. Tonight's radio drama was written by Lucille Fletcher. The original score was by Bernard Herrmann. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. You just listened to The Hitchhiker from Suspense, as originally aired on September 2nd, 1942. If you enjoyed Orson Welles in this story, be sure to tune back in to The Twilight Beacon on Halloween night, when we will feature his most famous broadcast, The War of the Worlds. Our next story is Make Ready My Grave, starring Richard Widmark, from Inner Sanctum on April 23, 1946. Richard Widmark was already a well-known dramatic actor in radio by the time he made this appearance on Inner Sanctum, and he would be featured on numerous radio programs throughout the 40s. In 1947, he broke onto the Hollywood scene with an Academy Award nomination for his debut film performance as Tommy Udo in Kiss of Death. His portrayal of the cackling and murderous villain Udo shocked audiences. And it was later learned that as a fan of Batman comics, he modeled his depiction of the character after the Joker. Widmark went on to play villainous roles in a string of film noir crime films before finally becoming a popular leading man in his own right. He starred in dozens of films, many of them westerns and war dramas. He was frequently partnered with Sidney Poitier after the two became friends during shooting of No Way Out, Poitier's debut film. He later acted in numerous TV movies, although his best-remembered television appearance was his first, when he played himself on a 1955 episode of I Love Lucy. Make Ready My Grave is standard fare for Inner Sanctum, a grim and deadly tale that uses Widmark's emotive voice to great effect. He plays a recently married man, alongside Joan Banks, another established radio performer, as his young bride. And now, Make Ready My Grave, as heard on Inner Sanctum, in April of 1946. Lipton Tea and Lipton Soups present Inner Sanctum Mysteries. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. This is your host opening the squeaking door for another session of the AGGMS, the Association of Ghouls, Ghosts, and Midnight Spirits. Oh, may I see your membership card as you enter, please? But, uh, oh, no, no, it's not a printed card. All you have to do is show me your wrist. If there's any blood pulsing in your arteries, then you don't belong here tonight. Better come back and try some other time. After you've passed your mortuary test. <laughs> well, Mr. Host, I'm afraid I don't qualify as a member of your AGGMS, Association of Ghouls, or whatever it is. But I am a charter member of the ILLB Society. The ILLB? What's that, Mary? It's a new one on me. 
Why, those initials stand for I like Lipton's best. To join this club, all you have to do is see that the tea in your teapot is always Lipton's. The club password isn't a word at all. It's that familiar sound of appreciation. Mmm. For really, Lipton tea is delicious, as zestful and spirited as can be. And the reason? Very simple. It's Lipton's brisk flavor. Brisk, you know, is the tea expert's own word for the lively, full-bodied flavor of Lipton tea. That brisk flavor has made a lot of friends, for more folks buy and enjoy Lipton's than any other tea in the world. So try a cup of Lipton tea yourself. I know you'll say, as so many others do, I like Lipton's best. And now for tonight's Inner Sanctum Mystery. It's an original radio play by Emil Tepperman called Make Ready My Grave and stars two radio favorites, John Banks and Richard Widmar. It's about a boy and a girl who've just been married. A piece of colored string, an open grave, and a hangman's noose. That train is the Southeast Limited. See it? Long, sleek, and powerful. Clicking off the miles and the humming rails. A masterpiece of 20th century mechanical perfection. Nothing about it to suggest lurking hate or fear or superstition or death. But let's take a look into compartment A, car 17. John and Betty Loomis, just married, are going for their honeymoon to John's ancestral estate. John. John, I'm so happy. <laughs> How soon do we get to Loomisville? In about an hour, Betty. Just think, I married into one of the oldest families in the state. I hope you'll be very happy, darling. Oh, I will, I will. You do love me, don't you, John? Of course I do, baby. I'll always love you. Always. No matter what happens. What do you mean, no matter what happens? What could happen? John, something's bothering you. No, no, it's nothing at all. You're hiding something. There's something you haven't told me. It's nothing, Betty. It's nothing to worry about. You don't want to tell me? No, not now. Maybe later. Why are you playing with that piece of yellow string? What? You've been playing with it ever since we came onto the train. Hmm. <laughs> Gosh, I... I never noticed. I watched you. You've been tying a knot in it. A knot? Good Lord. I must have tied it without knowing what I was doing. You... You've tied it into a noose. A hangman's noose. But I don't know how I came to make it or where I picked it up. Well, it, it's only a piece of string. Yes, it's only a piece of string. Betty. What is it, John? Here, take this. A gun? Take it. But why? If, if I should ever try to... If I should ever try to strangle you... John. Please listen to me. If I should ever try to strangle you, promise me to use that gun on me. What are you talking about? Stop. Oh, this, Stop this is where we can... John, what's this all about? That piece of yellow string and, and now this gun. Put it away, Betty, and remember what I said. Don't ever forget it. 
is it so dark here? This is just a way station. The train only stopped here to let us off. Otherwise, it goes right through. Oh? I thought Loomisville was a big town. Well, it used to be a hundred years ago, but now there's only the Loomis estate. Well, are we far from the estate? About two miles. Old Herman Galt should be here to pick us up in the station wagon. Herman Galt? Mm-hmm. He's the handyman. There's been a Galt working for the Loomis family for the last 150 years. John, I don't like it here. Dark, and that wind. How the devil can Galt be? I wrote them what train we were taking. I'm right, what? Mr. John. Oh, Galt, you frightened my wife. I'm sorry, ma'am, if I scared you. Oh, that, that's all right. It... It was just the way you spoke so suddenly out of the darkness. If you'll follow me, I've got the station wagon back here. John, he doesn't like me. God, no, that's just his way. He's very devoted to the family. Where do you get to know him? I don't think I care to. Johnny, he's driving too fast. It's so dark. Don't worry, Betty. Galt knows this road like the back of his hand. We'll be there in a few minutes. I'm frightened. Darling, please, tell me why you gave me the gun. No, I, I can't tell you now, Betty. Maybe after you meet Uncle Everard. John. What? What's that in your hand? What? Oh. Another piece of string. A red one this time. Well, I, I... I must have picked it up in here, off the seat. You've knotted it into another hangman's noose. Galt. Yes, Mr. John. This piece of red string, did you put it here? No, sir. Then how did it get here? You ought to know. Yes. Yes, I, I ought to know. Galt, why are you stopping here? We're home, ma'am. This is the entrance to the Loomis estate. I've got to get out and open the gate. I'll be right back. Betty, I've, I've got to get out, too. I've got to see for myself. See what, John? You stay here, Betty. But, uh, stay right where you are. Wait a minute. I'm coming, back, too. Betty. Get back in the car. Mr. John is right, ma'am. You shouldn't go with him. Take care of her, Galt. I won't be long. Galt, where is he going? That is the Loomis family cemetery. Cemetery? What does he want to see in there in the middle of the night? He'll tell you himself, ma'am. In due time. No, I'm going to find out right now. Better not, ma'am. Better come John, back. John, wait for me. Betty, I told you to stay I'm in going car. with you. I want to know what there is in that cemetery. Get back in that car. I'm your wife now. I have a right to know what this is all about. I'm going with you. All right, if that's the way you feel about it. But hold on to that gun I gave you. Keep it in your hand all the time. John, why? You'll find why? out soon enough. This is the gate of the family cemetery. All the Loomises and their wives are buried here. It's so shadowy. White tombstones look like ghosts. Hold my hand, John. No. Just hold on to that gun. John, whose grave is this with the high tombstone? My great-grandfather's. Stuart Loomis. He founded the Loomis estate. This is my grandfather's grave. His wife. Here's my father. My mother. And... And that's all. That should be all. 
What do you mean? Come over here. This is what I came to see. This is what I've been afraid of. John. John, it, it's an open grave. Freshly dug. Yes, Betty. It was just dug tonight. But who is it for? Betty, darling. I, uh, I'm afraid it's for you. What's poor Betty letting herself in for? With a fresh grave waiting for her on a honeymoon. And a husband who ties little strings into hangman's nooses. But you know, come to think of it, Betty's a lucky girl at that. How many girls who get married nowadays can count on finding a nice snug place all ready for them to lie down in and rest? In peace. <laughs> Gracious, Mr. Host, Betty doesn't seem like a lucky bride to me. Why, most brides have things much easier. Because there's so many things today to help them make their marriage a success. For example? For example, Lipton tea. With Lipton tea on the pantry shelf, a young bride today has a much better chance of making her home a happy one. Just the other day, I was talking to a friend who just got married. As we sat there in her kitchen, sipping our Lipton tea, me occupying the only chair, and she perched on the kitchen stool, she said... You know, Mary, it was silly of me to worry about being able to cook the things Jack liked. It's not nearly as difficult as I imagined. Take this Lipton tea here. It answers the whole beverage problem as far as Jack is concerned. He's happy as long as he has Lipton's morning, noon, and night. <laughs> well, I told her I could understand that. Because most husbands I know about are partial to Lipton tea. And it's because of the extra satisfaction that's in Lipton's wonderful brisk flavor. Satisfaction, did I say? Mmm, you just try Lipton tea and see if that isn't an understatement. Try Lipton's tomorrow. And now let's hurry back to our date in a graveyard. Remember? With poor Betty, whose husband has just told her he's afraid the freshly dug grave is for her. John, what do you mean? Who dug this grave for me? Who? <laughs> if I told you, you'd think I was crazy. No, you've got to tell me. If I'm in danger, I have a right to know. Was it God? Your Uncle Everard? No. Well, at least I don't think so. His wife, Christine. Betty, do you believe that a ghost could dig a grave? Ghost? Do you mean I, I'm in danger from a ghost? Oh, I told you you'd think I was crazy. John, what? Why are you looking at me like that? I don't know. Betty, have you got that gun with you? No, I, I left it in the car. What good would a gun be against... A ghost. There's a station wagon still waiting at the gate, but I don't see Galt. Maybe he went up to the house. Galt, where are you? Hello there, John. What? What's up? Uncle Everard. What happened to Galt? He came up to the house. Said you'd gone into the cemetery. 
So I thought I'd better come down. Oh. Is... Is it there? Yes, it's there. A freshly dug grave. Oh. Uncle Everard, this is my wife, Betty. Who are you, Betty? Hello. You saw the grave too, Betty? Yes, and... and... John says he thinks it's for me. I, I'm afraid I don't understand all this. You haven't this. told her anything yet, John? Well, just just a, a little. I, I couldn't bring myself to. I think it's time you did. More tea, Betty? Thank you, Uncle Everard. I will have a little more. You, John? No, thanks. Too bad Christina's ill. She's upstairs in our room. But I hope she'll be better by tomorrow. You can see her then. Maybe. What do you mean? That grave out there. Maybe it'll be filled tomorrow. John, don't you think it's time you kept your promise to tell me what this is all about? You tell her, Uncle Everard. Well, Betty, there's a ghost in the Loomis family. That's it in a nutshell. Oh, I see. And it was a ghost who dug that grave. Huh? I know it sounds mad. But after 150 years, we Loomises have come to the conviction that it can't be anything but a ghost. 150 years? You mean... John's great-grandfather, Stuart Loomis, settled this strip of seacoast under a patent from the colonial governor. Here's his picture over the fireplace. He... He doesn't look much like you, John. Stuart Loomis was a hard man. There was a French privateer in these waters who made a lot of trouble in those days. Gaston Leroux, who sailed the seas with his wife, Antoinette. But what has a French pirate and his wife to do with that grave? Stuart Loomis captured Leroux and his wife. And under the authority conferred upon him by the governor, had the power to hang them. You mean the woman, too? Yes. He hanged them both. On a gibbet where our family cemetery now stands. Oh, how terrible. Before he died, Gaston LaRue laid a curse on the Loomis family. He swore that just as his wife was hanged, so would all the Loomis women die. He swore that he would come back and dig a grave for the wife of a Loomis in every generation and furnish the noose by which a Loomis would strangle his own wife. But, but that's incredible. Short while afterward, a fresh grave was found beside the gibbet where LaRue had been hung. That night, Stuart Loomis's wife, John's great-grandmother, was found hanging by the neck from the eaves of this very house. And Stuart Loomis... I told you Stuart Loomis was a hard man and had made many enemies. There were many who hated him deeply and bitterly. He was arrested and tried for the murder of his wife. Convicted and executed. Now you know the secret of the Loomis family. But, John, that, that still doesn't prove as a ghost. No, that one incident doesn't prove it. But it happened again when the next Loomis married. John's grandfather... And to the next one was John's father. Sometimes a year after he married, sometimes five years. But the curse never fails. 
It's happened in every generation. Yes. And now, John Loomis has brought a new wife home. And there's a freshly dug grave waiting in the family cemetery. Then... Then I'm next. I don't know, Betty. Maybe that grave isn't for you. What? Maybe it's for Christine. My wife. This, this is all ridiculous. A, a ghost couldn't dig a grave, make John strangle me to death. Uncle Everard, you, you can't believe such a legend. It can't be true. Maybe not, my dear. But the graves of the strangled Loomis women are out there to prove it. <laughs> Good night, Uncle Everard. Good night, John. Good night, Uncle Everard. This is such a big room. It's so gloomy. The whole house is like that. It lies gloomy and sullen under the Loomis curse. Oh, Betty, I love you so much. We'll beat the curse together. Let me go, darling. I want to change my clothes and wash. All right. There's the bathroom over there. I'll only be a minute. All right, darling. Oh, it's a lovely bathroom. <laughs> Betty, what is John, it? John, quick. What? Look. Hanging from the shower bar. What? A hangman's noose. It's a real one this time. Of rope. Ready to hang someone. Who put it there? It's the Loomis curse. We can't get away from it. No ghost could have hung that rope there. Let, let, let's call Uncle Everett. All right. Have you got the gun with you? No, it's in my handbag. Well, get it. But John... Get it, I say. All right, John. Here. Here, I've got it. All right, now keep it with you all the time. And don't be afraid to use it on me if necessary. All right, let's get your uncle. This is his room. I wonder if I ought to wake him. It might upset Aunt Christine. She's sick. We've got to wake him. Better knock harder. Well, it wasn't locked. Call him. Uncle Everard. Uncle Everard? He doesn't answer. But there's a light in the room. Push the door further open. All right. Well, there's nobody in the room. The bed's empty. Uncle Everard? Aunt Christine? Maybe in the bathroom. The door is open. Oh, Betty! John, Mark! What, what? Aunt Christine. She's hanging by the neck. She... She's dead. The same kind of a noose is in our bathroom. Uncle Everard Hanger, it's the Loomis curse catching up with us. No galt, any trace of Uncle Everard? I searched the whole house, basement to attic, not a sign of him. He must have gone out, come along. But it's raining. We've got to find him, Betty, come on. Come on. 
dark out here. How will we ever find you? I have a flashlight, ma'am. You look. What? Fresh footprints in the slush. Oh, they must be Uncle Everard's. They lead down toward the cemetery. Come along, go. Here, Mr. John, you can see for yourself the footprints lead right to this new grave. But why did he come here? There's the answer, Daddy. A cross at the head of the empty grave. Throw your flashlight on it, Carl. There's something written on it. It says, Christine Lucas. Betty, <gasps> what is it? Look. Over there. Another grave. He's dug another one. There's a cross on this one, too. Does it say anything? Yes. Yes, it does. It says, Betty Loomis. John, sit close to me. That portrait of Stuart Loomis over the fireplace looks so real. It frightens me. Now, remember, Betty, whatever happens, hold on to that gun and don't be afraid to use it tonight. Where is Gold? He ought to be here soon. He went to look for some weapons. Here I am, Mr. John. Gold, you always frighten me coming in so quietly. I'm sorry, ma'am. Here, Mr. John. These ought to be pretty good weapons. Size? Yes, I had them sharpened only the other day. They could slice a man's head off in one stroke. Take one, Mr. John. Thanks. But I'd hate to use it on Uncle Everard. If he shows up tonight, you'd better use it. Maybe he's come back into the house through the back way. I'll go through the house again if you'd like. This time I'll start with the attic. Be careful, Galt. I will, Mr. John, I don't like him. Galt? And I don't think he likes me either. Oh, that's that true. Darling, what's that? Must be Galt in the attic. Help, Mr. John! You must have met Uncle Everard hiding up there. Stay right here, Betty, and hold on to that gun. John, be careful. Don't worry, just take care of John, yourself. come back. I'm frightened. I'm afraid to be alone. There's, there's nothing to be afraid of. I have this gun. And if anybody comes... The lights... The lights went out... Who's there? Who's in this room? Don't come any closer. I have a gun and I'll shoot. I can't see you, but I'll shoot at the sound. John, help! Rope. Around my neck. Let's go. I'll shoot. It's not loaded. I took the bullets out when you left it in the car. Galt. Yes, ma'am, it's Galt. Mr. John is busy up there in the attic with the body of Mr. Everard. I killed him, too. And when Mr. John comes downstairs, he'll find you. And I'll cut him down in the dark with my scythe. Why? Why? There were others besides the pirate LaRue who hated Stuart Loomis. Like my own great-grandfather, he was in the service of Stuart Loomis, and he hated him. When LaRue laid the curse on the Loomises, my great-grandfather decided to make it come true. It was he who strangled the wife of Stuart Loomis... Through the years, the gods from father to son have handed down their hate. You, you're mad. Maybe. I'll tighten the noose and finish you. Where are you? Why is it dark in here? Betty! John, look out, it's all here. It's I. And so with I. John! John! Oh! Oh! 
darling. Where are you? Here, John, here. Oh, darling. Baby. We finished forever with the Loomis curse. That was a pretty rough honeymoon for Betty. But you know, there's a lesson in her story for forgetful wives. Yes, if you keep tying little colored strings to your fingers to remind you of things and you still can't remember them, why not try a rope neatly tied around your neck? It's sure to help you forget. (laughs) Oh, dear, Mr. Host, there you go telling our listeners how to forget things when I've got something for them to remember. Oh, I didn't realize that, Mary. What is it you want them to remember? It's Lipton tea, folks. And you don't need any string tied on your finger or any such reminder. To make sure you get it when you visit your grocers tomorrow, just remember that Lipton's is the tea with the wonderful brisk flavor. The fine quality tea that gives you all the goodness nature meant tea to have. I wish you'd try a cup of Lipton's soon, because it's so delicious. Just ask your grocer for Lipton's. Remember, Lipton's is the tea with brisk flavor. Ah. And so our evening's over. With the usual quota of corpses to qualify for the ghoul school. We're working on a special matriculation for bachelor ghouls. Uh, In case you didn't know, a bachelor ghoul is one who believes that two can die as cheaply as one. (laughs) Oh, by the way, this month's Inner Sanctum mystery novel is I Hate Blondes by Wolf Kaufman. And next week, the makers of Lipton Tea and Lipton Soups We'll bring you another Inner Sanctum story directed by Hyman Brown and called Dead Man's Turn. It's a a little night course in murder, that's all. As you have your choice of majoring in choking, shooting, drowning. But uh, why don't you just listen in to Inner Sanctum next week and you'll get all the inside told. Oh, yes, next week part of the country goes on daylight saving time. If your area remains on standard time, tune in to Inner Sanctum one hour earlier. Until then, good night. Pleasant dreams. (laughs) This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That will wrap up this episode of The Twilight Beacon, featuring two legends of radio and film. You heard The Hitchhiker, starring Orson Welles, from the September 2nd, 1942 airing of Suspense, and Make Ready My Grave, with Richard Widmark, as broadcast on Inner Sanctum, April 23rd, 1946. The Twilight Beacon will return this Friday, October 22nd, with another Sci Friday episode of classic science fiction stories, including a tale by Isaac Asimov that was adapted for radio. Until then, this is Jedediah D. Blackwell saying good night, everyone, and good luck getting to sleep.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Twilight Beacon podcast. New episodes are released on thetwilightbeacon.com Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays during the month of October and can be found on your favorite podcast apps and streaming services. The Twilight Beacon podcast is produced and edited by Jason and Jacob Burgess. Music by Alexander Nakarada. Special thanks to the Old Time Radio Researchers Group and OTRR.com. Visit thetwilightbeacon.com for archived episodes and a schedule of upcoming shows. You can follow The Twilight Beacon on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest program updates.